Okay, this evening what I'm going to talk about is, I kept threatening this with you last week, is dependent origination. <clears throat> Paticca Summit Pada. And we covered in some odd little bits references to Paticca Summit Pada when I was talking last week. There is no doubt, in my mind anyway, that this particular teaching is the most important one in the whole of Buddhism. Um, we have it on the evidence, as I, I think I quoted to you last week, we have it on the evidence of the Buddha himself. This is profound. This is a profound teaching. That means it's difficult and really at the heart of the Dharma teachings. It's at the heart of the discovery that the Buddha made about the fact that all things are generated out of causes and conditions. And none more so particularly than our psychology. And so there are kind of two general formulas, and I think I've gone through this before, but I'll just remind you again. Two general formulas. One, which is really simple to remember, really, really easy to remember, which is this, that, this ceases to be, that ceases to be. This is, that is. This ceases to be, that ceases to be. And that's the generalised formula. It's in a sense a causal formula for all phenomena. Every, everything in the universe, as far as the Buddha is concerned, is generated out of causes and conditions. Remember I said to you, and I think it was probably in the second of the talks I gave last week, that nothing is generated ex nihilo. So it goes against all those sort of creation stories and everything else. Um, there is no one single thing in the universe out of which everything else comes. It's just a series of dependent arisings, and that is it. So again, if we are contacting our theme for the retreat, emptiness, all things are empty of having intrinsic existence, because they're generated from causes and conditions. And this will echo like a mantra by the time you finish this course, um, because that really is at the heart of this teaching. Nothing is intrinsically existent, because they depend on causes and conditions. Anything that was intrinsically existent would have to exist outside of causes and conditions. And remember I gave the example of God. Yeah. God couldn't have a cause because then the cause would be greater than God. <laughs> That's the generalised formula. That's the really easy one to remember. Um, and then there is the 12-link version. Now the Buddha uses quite a number of different versions of this. Sometimes, in fact, in something called the Mahanidana Sutta, which is in the Diganikaya, in the long discourses of the Buddha, the Buddha gives this discourse, and this is the one where he chastises Ananda, remember that? When Ananda says, I've got it. I really understand dependent origination. The Buddha says, think again, Ananda. <laughs> You haven't got it at all. Uh, and remember what I was saying about this was I think he's probably got it intellectually, but he certainly hasn't got it in practice. And this is practical dependent origination, seeing it in operation. Seeing is what is actually happening in our psychology. So it's a kind of deep glimpse into the nature of how we produce misery for ourselves. And the Buddha in the Mahanadana Sutta um, actually only gives nine links rather than the standard twelve. Um, however, the most comprehensive version is the twelve-link version of this.
It's the one that's there in the Udana. Again, these are all things you can look up when you finish the retreat. Uh, it's there in the Udana as being the content of what he actually discovers in his awakening. And I say discovers, not invents. He actually discovers this. That this is what actually goes on um, in the production of Sangsara and in, in a sense, unravelling Sangsara. And the formula starts with ignorance. The first of the links. Now, bear in mind, I'm going to have to do this simply for teaching purposes to kind of almost make this sound linear, where it mm. isn't. Um, and perhaps in the second of the talks I'll give, I'll try and make it a little less linear. But for tonight, you're going to have to kind of hear it in a linear version. So it starts with ignorance. Ignorance isn't just, as I keep trying to emphasise to people, ignorance isn't just lack of knowledge. It really isn't just lack of knowledge, because if that was the case, then, as I suggested to you already you know, last week, that most of you would be awakened by now, because you've heard most of the teachings. Yeah. Um, you've probably read most of the books that you need to read, yeah. but you still don't get it. <laughs> and that's the point, is they're still not getting it. So ignorance isn't simply deprivation of knowledge. It's literally, to use the English etymology of the word, it's to ignore. It's not only not knowing, it's not really wanting to know. <laughs> so in other words, there are actual aspects about our existential condition, about the way the world is, about the way things actually are, that really we are deeply resistant to really knowing. And when we do know, we only hear it intellectually. So what we're moving away from in the real understanding of this is the moving away from intellectual understanding into what I would refer to as embodied knowledge. A knowledge which really is part of our corporeal way of being in the world, a part of our ways of seeing things. So this is what's being implied. That not only is it that we don't know, but we don't want to know. So even when we're told it, you don't really hear it. <laughs> and I always make this, and I've said this so many times you know, in my house over the years, is you know, we all know impermanence. It's not actually um, a major intellectual concept, is it, to get into your brains that you've got to kind of really rack your brains to think about. You know, things are impermanent, they change, they don't remain the same. However, and let's cut out the tragedies of life, but, you know... Um, why do you get so upset when something breaks? When something you lose something or it gets stolen or whatever, why do you get upset about it? It's because intellectually we know impermanence, but in a way we don't know it. We don't really see it in any depth whatsoever. So we continue to suffer from those minor irritations that are there in life simply because things are impermanent. You know, what's one particular author called the malice of inanimate objects? Because <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, they never do what you want them to do. <laughs> um, and particularly that they change on you. So change is part of the content of what it means to have the opposite of actually what the Pali Sanskrit term is, which is a vidya, or a vidya in Pali. To have vidya or to have vidya 
means to really see into the heart of reality, to know what is actually going on. In Buddhist terms, of course, that is to see dukkha, it's to see nicca, and it's to see anatta. It's to see those three things constantly arising. But actually, do we really want to know about them? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Do you really want to know about them? <laughs> do you want to know that actually, and it's not to, act, to say that the moment of pleasure isn't pleasure, but to know that it's going to decline, it's going to change. The attempt to grasp after it is going to create dukkha. Nothing that we hold on to, in the sense or attempt to hold on to, perhaps that's a better phrase than hold on to, attempt to hold on to, actually has any substantiality. These are the way, I mean, it always goes back to the first talk I gave, and these are kind of the unpalatable truths about life. However, when, if you want to live easefully or more easefully in this world, they have to be taken on board. They have to be, you have to be deeply cognizant of them. But in this embodied cognition, not simply in this mental, oh yes, I know. You know as I joked with you, I think, last week, you know, we all know that everybody's going to die. I know, yeah. Of course one's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Notice how you can distance it with the royal, <laughs> with the one. <laughs> and that's really saying, well, of course everybody else is going to die, but not really me. <laughs> I'm not going to die. There's that little voice that's really resisting it uh, within your own head. And so this is, this is what you're dealing with, is actually this resistance. The resistance to the way things are. That is the content of ignorance. So actually, these are also what's called asavas. And I think I've mentioned this word to you before. That which flows out of us. And we don't like to keep our ignorance to ourselves. We like to spread it around. <laughs> you know, that's what goes on as well. Um, not only do we not want to know, we won't want you to know either. <laughs> you know, and certainly don't present me with anything um, such as these unpalatable truths about life. And so these are kind of things that are flowing out of us. The synonym in Pali and Sanskrit for one who has awakened is one who has brought an end to the asavas, called kinasava. It's actually, in a sense, eradicated ignorance, but also eradicated the desire for novelty, you know, the frisson of life, of all these things, you know, stimulation. I want to be stimulated, I'm bored. Amusements, all this sort of stuff, which actually goes with karma, sensuality. Sensuality isn't just about nice things. It's not just about material goods. It's about the drive to want stimulation as well. It's in Freudian terms, it's the erotic drive. So it includes sexuality, it includes obviously all of the sensual goodies that are around us, but it also includes all these psychological traits like the drive for novelty, the drive for stimulation, you know, make me happy, that kind of stuff, that you want somebody else or something to do for you. And that is ceaseless. It's, as you will see as we get further down the chain when I talk about this in more depth, you know, that kind of drive for sensory stimulation is never-ending. It will really, really never find a terminal point in your life. 
Um, I'm sure we've all had at one stage, and I'll leave you to fill in the blank, a kind of phrase that says, you know, if only I was with, or if only I had, I would be happy. How long does that last, even when you get those things? That's something you have to ask yourself, something you have to examine in your own life to, to look for. And so Kamma is there. It is actually, it's the, in Indian mythology, Kamma is actually exactly the same figure as Eros. Yeah, even the same symbolism is used. He has a little bow and arrow, um, Kamma, except rather than firing arrows, he fires flowers at people in Indian mythology. So if you feel hit by a nice flower, that's your Kamma. Kamma? You're talking about Kamma? <laughs> no, no, it's Kamma. It's K-A, it's a long A-M-A. Which is why, don't get confused with Karma. And what does it mean again? It means sensuality. Right. Sense desire. K-A-M-A. Yeah. It's a long A, so you usually put a line above the yeah. first A. Yeah. Kamma. Kamma. Yeah. Rather than Kamma or Karma. Yeah. There's a lot of lies in that little R. <laughs> is that all part of the ignorance? This is all part of the ignorance. Yeah, this is the content of the ignorance. So yeah. there's ignorance and there's ignorance as being obviously part of the content of that but there is a sense desire which is driven by ignorance then there is also the desire to be to want to be that's the desire for continued existence and that doesn't just mean in this life it means in future lives could be the desire for an immortal soul something like that just says I don't want to go (laughs) I want to be me forever. What a terrible thought. (laughs) So it's this desire for continued existence. So we have avidya, kamma, then we have what's called bhava, which is this, this desire for continued existence. And then finally, if that isn't enough, not only are you ignorant, desiring, I want to be around forever, um, but you're full of opinions. This is called ditti, dittasava. There's a actually there's a secondary meaning to this term asava. It's a pity I don't have a ball because I'd write these terms up; they're much easier to picture when you see them. There's another meaning to this term asava, which is really it's the crap that's within. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're quoting the Buddha there. <laughs> He didn't have to say it in that way. It's all implied in the term. Because <laughs> the term asava really is that which flows out of you like effluent. <laughs> I have this horrible visions of incontinence here. <laughs> yeah, which, which is not terribly edifying, I know. But, but in a way, this is what we are. With these particular traits, with the trait of ignorance, desire, sense desire desire for continued existence and our opinionatedness, this just flows out of us. Um, so much so that, in, again, in, in Pali, that the term for, you know, the third noble truth, can you remember what the third noble truth is? Cessation, yeah. Well, the word actually in Pali is niroda. Niroda is actually, means to stop leaking. <laughs> so there's your incontinence again. Yeah. Yeah, it actually implies you're not actually leaking this stuff out all over the place. 
It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not a very, as I say, edifying vision, is it? But but this is what's going on. This is the, what's actually happening. We, in a way, and like I said, I don't want to stress this too much, but in a way, with those particular traits, we don't keep them to ourselves. We don't keep our desires, sense desires to ourselves. We don't keep our ignorance to ourselves. Yeah, we don't keep this kind of striving, which is actually what desire for continued existence means. And we certainly don't keep our opinions to ourselves. Um, and that is what we're leaking onto the world. Yeah. Now, it's just worth saying, it's just worth mentioning, the reason why you get these images in this phase of early Buddhism is because the Buddha came from a very agrarian society. And so the images that are often used are about, you know, looking after paddy fields. And if your paddy field isn't solid, then it will leak. And it will leak all its contents out, which is what actually keeps it going. And so these are the kind of images he's using. He's using very practical images from, from his actual culture here. So, here you go. That's what the content of ignorance is. It's not just ignorance. And we tend to think it's very easy. Ignorance is pretty... If I just had all the knowledge, everything would be okay. This is saying, if you had all the knowledge, it would all still be exactly the same. (laughs) Nothing would have changed. That's how deeply embedded, in some sense, the asavas as the contents of ignorance Oh. if you like, this is the most difficult strata of the psyche to get at. Hence the reason why, and I think again I might have mentioned this to you before, what does the Buddha say in terms of what causes dukkha? Well, he immediately identifies craving. Tanha. Now, that actually is a long way round the chain comparatively, simply because it's so difficult to get back to this really deeply strated level of the psyche. It's so, so difficult to get back to it. Now, because of ignorance, we behave in certain ways. We speak in certain ways, and we think in certain ways. And now, hopefully, here, ignorance with the content of the asavas. So instead of knowledge, what we've got is mainly opinion about the way things are. No real experience of it, but just opinions. And you hear this, I mean, you ever eavesdrop on a conversation, you hear lots and lots of opinions. Not a lot of knowledge. Yeah. Opinion, really, opinionatedness, is something that most of us are full of. And where do we derive those from? Well, in the modern world, often we derive from things like the media. We often derive them from television, newspapers. They're not even our own opinions much of the time. They're kind of second-hand, even. So what I'm trying to get across to you is this is very, very far removed from the kind of experiential knowledge which really would constitute the absolute antonym to the ignorance that's been spoken about. The absolute opposite, in other words. It's very, very far from that. It's still actually mainly embedded still in ignorance and the way that we find our way around the world. Remember an image I was trying to give 
to you, which is actually an image of confusion. Now, ignorance, you know, often sounds like a lot of intellectual stuff as well. This is just being downright confused in life, not knowing what to do, being dropped down into a strange company and country, being dropped down into that strange country and nobody's given you the map of how to find your way around. So no wonder you stumble around blindly, trying to make do the best ways that you can. And that is actually a lot of what life is. So this really, hopefully, if you really understand this, takes the moralistic sting out of it. This is not because people are bad people. They're doing the best they can. But without any of the right tools to do it. And the tools that they do find that they use often get repeated again and again and again. You find a way of dealing with the situation um, and you end up using that tool in another situation where it probably isn't appropriate at all. One of the meanings of the term sangsara, which of course is what this is all about, one of the meanings of the term sangsara is actually to go round in circles. You know, so there is a circularity to experience that we have. I mean, do you ever feel that? Going round and round in circles? No. <laughs> of course not, no. <laughs> You're too awakened for that. <laughs> so there is this kind of circularity to experience. It's that, it really is that often feeling almost a deja vu when you get this sense of being in the same place. Often, often actually, unfortunately, making the same mistakes as you've done many, many years previously doing the same things. And that's because we've got a limited, you know, kind of using again a metaphor, you've got a limited toolbox for dealing with life's difficulties. You're kind of trying to construct the map as you go along. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those medieval maps where nothing actually looks quite right? <laughs> yeah. Everything is out of proportion. Um, and often the place where you are, you know, i.e. somewhere like London and the medieval maps, looks about ten times the size of Britain. <laughs> because that was the centre of the world for people. And in a way, what I'm trying to say by that is, is that actually what happens to us. We create maps where we are the centre of the world. Yeah. Um, and everything centres around us here. So what I'm trying to get out of this is, is dependent, I see the technical formulation, dependent on ignorance arises formations. What's known as sanskaras. Um, Even in, I hope, even the pronunciation I'm using, I hope you hear the resonance. Sansara, sanskara. It has a similar feel to the word which implies the circularity. And I went into a little bit about this, obviously, because when we talked about not-self, sanskaras, the potter moulding the pots, as it often is in the Tibetan iconography. Because they illustrate all these 12 links, so you've got the blind man, of course, um, who's stumbling through the world. That's ignorance. We've got the potter moulding the pots, which is what we do through thought, word and deed body, speech and mind. 
We're still in the content of ignorance. No, we just moved on. To for yeah. formation. We've done, moved on to formation. That's why I said the technical form, form is out of ignorance or dependent on ignorance will arise formations. These are, in a sense, and using slightly more technical language, although it's language you're familiar with, these are karmic formations. They are what has been formed out of previous action. So, our lives hitherto have been those countless speech acts, countless acts of body, you know, in terms of what we do, um, in terms of our physical actions, and also countless thoughts. You know, forget about previous lifetimes and future lifetimes. Let's just stick to this one for the moment because it makes it easier to understand. That life has been formed out of these countless acts, and it's all here present with you right now. Yeah. You are your past as you sit there. Mm. That's where you are. All this stuff isn't simply past. It's continuing in some ways to determine the way that you are now. So if you don't do anything about it, which of course you're not because you are doing something about it, but if you don't do anything your past is your present, and it will become your future. Mm. And in many of the instances, and most of the deep, the deep stuff, attached mainly to the asavas and things of that nature, the ignorance, of course, that actually we will be determined. Because we haven't actually discovered this. We haven't gone through this archaeology of the soul to get down to these deep layers and actually begin to see them clearly to see what's going on there. So in not having, in some senses, encountered that layer, other than in our activities, they determine the way that we are. So we continue to form other activities which are similar. Not identical, because remember we're not talking about identity here. We're talking about continuity. Again, process. As I've been speaking all the way through, ever since last Tuesday when I sat in front of you. We've been speaking about this continuity. So the habits are there, but they're not quite the same. <laughs> we have propensities to behave in similar ways in certain situations. So again, this is just indicative of our limited toolbox for dealing with life. We keep on using the same tools again and again and again. And think about it. Somebody's nasty to me, I get angry. Yeah. It's a pretty limited response. <laughs> yeah. There's the thing in the shop window I want. There I am like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> Salivating for it. Yeah. Again, I'd suggest it's a pretty limited response. However, I mean, these are the areas where you can catch yourself out. You can see this in action. See the you know, habit formation, because actually a very good ordinary vernacular translation of this word would be just simply habit. To see the habit in operation. As I was um, suggesting to you last week, of course, though, that you know, habits are us. <laughs> That's what we think. 
we don't like them being challenged because we invest them with a certain sense of our identity into our habits and dispositions. I mean, how many of us would say simply, for example, when challenged with a habit, oh, it's just something I happen to do and it's not very important. I could let it go if I want to, but I actually still continue to do it. We don't do that, do we? We don't hold them lightly at all, these dispositions, these habits. We believe they are ours. And in fact, more often than not, we'll get irritated, if not even downright angry, if somebody begins to challenge um, the ways that we do things, even our patterns of speech, for example. We get very annoyed, very irritated by this. So out of those formations, we are literally forming our lives. So out of that past experience into the present, we are forming the ways that we see things, taste things, touch things, all of our sensory perceptions, you know, all of our ways of manoeuvring our ways around the difficulties of the world. And again, I don't want you to think that this is simply making us bad people. It's not. This is just saying, this is what happens. This is a very, very clear look, in some senses, at the psychology of pathology, yeah. of doing things in a pathological way. I joked about it last week, I said from the Buddhist perspective, and it's none more exemplified than this, in this particular description, that we're all compulsive neurotics. Yeah. We have this compulsion to repeat, to do things again and again and again. Not identical, but very similarly. Yeah. It's also about trying to keep a stable world. Yeah. Even if it causes me pain, better the pain I know than the one I don't. Yeah. So I really even have my pain under control. Because yeah. this is the pain I know. In fact, even the pain can move in, in terms of these dispositions and form part of our identity. I suffer because I'm like this. So never underestimate the power of these formations to keep on forming things. And what do they form? Well, they form, for example, the first, and this is where we move again into the third link, they form, in a sense, the first objects for consciousness. The things that are most directly in some senses, that we are conscious of are our dispositions. What we want. How we want it. The things that we're going to say. These dispositions are tremendously important to us. And they form the objects of consciousness. So, the formula again. Dependent on the formations arises consciousness. Now, it's not really saying that the formations cause consciousness. Now, this is where you can actually see a dynamic, because if you are actually having arrows between these, consciousness and the formations, the two arrows, the arrows will be going in both directions. Yeah. This is number three. This is number three, yes. So what we've had so far is vidya, sanskaras, and now vijnana. Vijnana which is consciousness. Consciousness, remember, 
it has is nothing other than whatever object that comes before it. So, and I use this formula even when talking in terms of the khandas. Consciousness is a dependent arising. It's not just there. It's not like having some gigantic eye which is looking at everything, just waiting for an object to come along. <laughs> consciousness and object arise together. The first immediate proximate object for consciousness is the sankharas. Dispositions, habits, formations, karmic conditions, all of these are adequate translations for this particular term. What did you just say? So we can just that last sentence again. Can I rewind? Sanskaras, about sanskaras. Okay, sanskaras, well, let me go back to get my train of thought here. What I'm trying to say is that consciousness and the world arise together. So the consciousness and the sanskaras arise directly. Yeah. And the sanskaras themselves, there's quite a number of synonyms you can use them. Habits, formations, dispositions, um, karmic formations. There's so many different ways that you can actually talk about it. And all of these are fairly adequate for giving a description of what the content of the formations are. And they will form, in some senses, the most immediate objects for consciousness. In other words, we're none more so conscious than we are when we're conscious of our own dispositions. That's the first glimmering, if you like, of I, me, mine. It all happens in this particular instance. It then gets much more strongly structured as we then go through the chain, through the chain of dependent arising. Now, what I haven't meant, mentioned to you so far, and I really ought to do it at this point, that this notion of dependency is literally, I think I did give you this image, but I need to mention it again tonight, is the image of things supporting each other. And I think I gave you an example that's often used in the early texts of corn stooks, which are held up together by propping each other up. Yeah. And this is what we mean. It's really much more a chain of dependencies rather than simply a chain of causation for all sorts of reasons I won't go into. So it's much more a chain of dependencies. Overall, this particular chain of dependencies is the way life is immediately patterned. And it's patterned with a feeling tone. And that feeling tone is unsatisfactoriness. That is dukkha. That is what is immediately patterned through it. So this description, as we work our way through the 12 links, we've now only got to consciousness, but this description is the patterning of life moment to moment. This is what's going on. But also, it's saying that this particular patterning has this feeling tone. It's sansara. So the feeling tone that it has is dukkha. Now, I've done this so many times, but I think I ought to even just mention it one more time. Dukkha. This word that's usually translated as suffering, which is completely and utterly inadequate as a translation. Yeah, it's, not just, it's not just feeble, it's just wrong. 
Yeah, it was a very early translation that was used by um, translators in the 19th century, a lot of them who were Christians, and they used Christian terminology to translate some of these terms. The word dukkha itself, etymologically, is just really interesting. Um, I mean, I don't want to give you lessons in Pali and Sanskrit, but it's just really interesting, because the actual word is composed out of two elements, which is du and ka, dukkha. Do means dirty, unpleasant, um, unsatisfactory, painful. It often referred, for example, to a hole that would be created by an arrow wound, yeah. for example. Um, that was pleasant and unpainful, and it was circular as well. And the car, which means space. So dukkha, if you wanted a really literally, a literal translation of the term, literally means a dirty space <laughs> or a dirty place to be in. Yeah. It was often used as well in very ancient Sanskrit to refer to a hole in a wheel into which the shaft of an axle fitted. And that hole was pit, you know, it was packed with dirt and grease and grit. And it went round and round and round. And it didn't do it terribly stably either. <laughs> you know, and actually showed that the propensity of the wheel of life was unstable. Actually. And gritty as it went round. And the most brilliant uh, description that I ever heard given, and I know some of you have heard me say this before, was given again by one of my teachers when I was living in South India. And he said that um, dukkha wasn't like being stabbed in the back. It wasn't really painful. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Yeah, it doesn't start off terribly painful. You keep on. <laughs> it gets more and more painful. Yeah, that, is, that is the feeling tone to what we're talking about. This is the dukkering that goes with sangsari. <laughs> Notice I'm turning them into verbs again. Yeah. So this is a way of being. This is how we create this way of being. This is how we pattern our existence, day to day, moment to moment. So we've got to consciousness, the arising of consciousness. It says in the formulation, we'll only get about halfway through tonight, and I'll tell you who did it tomorrow night. <laughs> So we'll get to the next of the links, which is dependent on consciousness arises namarupa. Name and form is literally what it means. Often translated, not incorrectly at all, as mind and body. Now, often this is taken to be a literal coming together of a, a physical body and a mind into the world. Uh, and this doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah. Again, when you look into the text, you find actually what really is being implied here is not so much a birth, a literal birth of a mind and body, but the patterning of a mind and body, the blueprinting of a mind and body. Now, if you think about this, just let's go back again. I'm afraid I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. Out of ignorance arises formations. 
Out of formations arises consciousness. Out of consciousness arises this patterning of a mind and body. Now really what it's saying is, is that out of ignorance, effectively through all those other things, arises this mind and body. That the mind is blueprinted in a certain way out of those previous karmic formations which were determined by ignorance, which were the first objects of consciousness, in a sense. Out of that will also arise the patterning of a body, too. Now, all of this is going to have consequences later on in the chain, as hopefully you can see. Because the way that I pattern my mind now, particularly the mind, obviously is going to have an influence on the way that the body is. So, for example, if out of these first four links um, I continue to, you know, I don't know, have certain desires, mental formations, certain desires which lead me to ingest things which are very unhealthy, then they're going to pattern the body and have a consequence later on. So again, it's showing causal connectedness. You can't do anything, think anything, that is not going to have some consequence. What's the difference between this and karma, karmic formations? It's just it's working out in terms of the actual physical, mental and physical form. It's the, it's the setting down of that blueprint for it. In other words, this is actually a further explication of that. And I can see what you're saying. It's not really a lot of difference. Because the connection really here and the bridge, of course, is consciousness. In this. So everything we think, do, and say is going to have a consequence. That is unfortunately the news. Yeah. You can't do, say, or think anything which doesn't have a consequence. Even doing nothing has a consequence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So even if you want to retreat to your, I don't know, little cave in the Himalaya somewhere, uh, it still has a consequence. That is karma. Um, this is a much misunderstood word. The word karma itself is nothing other than everything you do has a consequence. Literally the word karma means action. That's all it is. It indicates activity. You cannot be in this world without acting. And if you act, then it has consequences. And as I suggested, even not acting is an acting. Mm. This is even recognised in kind of philosophy and in law sometimes. Mm. The fact of not doing something sometimes is equally as culpable as doing something. Mm. Because you should have done it. Mm. (laughs) Called acts and omissions. The doctrine of acts and omissions. So an omission is equally an act in some way. So, that's the news. So, hence the reason for mindfulness. <laughs> because actually, if you are unmindful, then a lot of, you know, as we are, because we're stumbling around in this rather confused state without the map, as I suggested right at the beginning, we're stumbling around in this way, then we're going to do an awful lot of things that are going to have consequences. And consequences directly upon us, but also on others as well. 
So, we're patterning our minds and bodies all the time. Um, we're in social interactions where you know, bodies and minds are patterned as well. And you can see this in families, can't you, where certain things are not necessarily genetic, but they get carried through families. Where the minds and bodies have been patterned at a very, very early age. You know, with the same neuroses, ways of doing things. Um, that people end up in later life with very similar illnesses to the ones that their parents had mm. as well. So, mind and body is being patterned. And it's also having direct consequence on the next link in the chain, which is dependent on Nama Rupa, arises what's known as Salayatana, which is six sense doors. So how do we begin to have patterns? As you can see, arrows, if you're drawing arrows at all, should be going both directions. Six sense, <laughs> six sense doors. Often this is depicted, you know, um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of number of ways. Sometimes it's depicted as a house. Um, with nobody in it, <laughs> to show there's nobody at home, <laughs> in any real sense. Um, six sense doors. This is where we let in, isn't it? All of our sense doors are, are in a sense, not just seeing a world, but already being conditioned by what's gone previously. So I don't just see the world, I see it through past dispositions. I see it through ignorance. You have to get over this naive idea that the world is simply out there for us. It isn't. It's, we hear things in certain ways. We taste them. We see them. You know, the ocular metaphor is often the one that's used the greatest. But you know, all of the other senses are conditioned. And we're conditioned in the way that we will contact our mental stuff as well. So that's not simply in there either. We're contacting all that mental stuff. So really the six sense doors are all of the material that's being processed. But it's not just simply being processed in terms of simply being perceived, which would be a nice idea, you know, we just simply see what's there. It's being conditioned through all the previous factors. All the previous factors. You know, as it says at the, right at the beginning of the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. Yeah. This, in a sense, is showing how that mind is the forerunner of all things. But here, very specifically, in a sangsaric way. Now, because of having a sense doors, then we contact which is pasa, or sparsha, in Sanskrit. So, contact. Our eyes literally palpate the visible. Our ears palpate the audible. Yeah, so we contact. Um, it's very intimate contact. Again, 
imagery is used, and sometimes this imagery is used for contact, is a man with an arrow in his eye. <laughs> a man with an arrow in his eye. Yeah, because it's yeah, that direct. <laughs> we can't avoid it, can we? Either. Even even if you're put into a sensory deprivation chamber, you'll still be contacting all that mental stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's no escape. Yeah. There's no escape from this at all. And of course, in a way, after contact is when all the fun starts. <laughs> Isn't it? Because this is when we get Vedana arising. Vedana is of six forms. This is the next one. Yes. Yeah. Dependent on contact arises Vedana. Arises feeling. Arises sensation. Do the arrows go both way on all between all the links? Uh, in a way they do. Um, it's not so obvious in some of them. Um, some of them it's really, really obvious. And actually, arrows go between all yeah. of them as well. Yeah. You know. okay. Actually, Christina has a wonderful way of doing it. So I was teaching with Christina as I did in the States, and actually Tony came a couple of years back. Uh, she lays down all the cards of the 12 links and steps between them, showing the links. Uh, yeah. um, because not only are they going circularly, you know, with arrows going in both directions, but they're going between each other too. And hopefully I'll, I'll pick up some of that in the next talk I give on this. So I say, this is when the fun and game starts, when we get Vedana arising. Because as you know, you should be able to quote this now. You know. What kind of feelings do we have? <laughs> yeah, I said it jokingly the other day, didn't I? It's a very limited range, isn't it? I either like it, don't like it, or I'm completely indifferent. And actually, if you really think about it, most of your experience is only in terms of two. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're indifferent, you don't really notice it <laughs> at all. So we've got desire, aversion, and ignorance here. The ignorance, of course, is the indifference. And therein lies the great bulk of our experience. You literally don't see it at all. No, in a sense, attention is paid to that which you're indifferent to at all. Because those polarities of our experience, both physically and mentally, are so strong of the desire and the aversion that everything else gets overlooked. So we're going back to ignorance again. (laughs) And straight back there. I don't want to know about a lot of experience. And I say, of course, that the fun and games start because then we get into the big one. The arising of tanha. Which is, tanha is craving or desire. How do you spell that? T-A-M-H-A. Oh, right. If you really want to be accurate, you put a dot under the N and a long line over the A. (laughs) But I'm a bit of a pedant about these. (laughs) 
Uh, the interesting meaning of this word, although it's not inaccurate to translate it in the ways we've just done in the traditional translations, right? craving, desire, its literal meaning, I think, captures its pathos. It means unquenchable thirst. Mm. What's the word again? Tanha. Tanha. Yeah. So by its very, very nature, it cannot be satisfied. Mm. And this again relates to something I said earlier on about you know, sense desires. It has no terminal point. There is no terminal point to sense desire. You know, even if you get the thing that you really, really desired, then you would be on fairly quickly looking for the next thing. And that's the way our lives generally are when they're driven by desire. You know, this is again wasn't particularly the Buddha's unique discovery. It was there within an early Indian thought in general. That desire was in some sense the culprit here. So desire is actually generating, fueling a thirst for something that can never be reached. So we can never be satisfied. And in a way, and I want you to really hear this and just reflect on it, if you get a chance, that this is actually the pathos of the human situation. Let's forget about other species. This is the pathos of the human situation. Being in a way condemned to go on searching for something that's going to make you happy. But even when you get it, it's not going to. That's the real pathos in the situation. Because this desire, as you probably gathered, is nearly always directed, certainly in terms of sensory forms, externally. Even with other human beings. Um, And it's not a relationship. It's non-relational. It has a quasi relationship built into it in the sense that it appears to be like relationship but isn't and what I mean by that and you can think <clears throat> let me try and put this in a kind of really concrete situation a rather silly one but let me try and put it in a concrete situation you know, two people together make me happy you can see how doomed to failure that is <laughs> you know, because you're putting the onus of responsibility on the other in terms of your desire to make you happy. Which in Buddhist terms obviously can only arise from within. Happiness, contentment, equanimity, whatever you want to call it. All the synonyms that are often used for the awakening experience. It's not going to come from outside. And that's the most obvious one because actually that, in a way that's the un vocalised demand that's often in human relationships that's not actually ever spoken Mm -hmm. directly it looks even more ridiculous when you put it onto something inanimate to make you happy (laughs) the pathos gets even greater I think in some ways in that to look for something that's going to make you happy. New house, status, wealth, whatever it might be. To give you that. And even if you got it, you wouldn't be happy. 
As Oscar Wilde once said, there's nothing worse than not getting what you wanted than getting what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem that we are confronted by. Now, being this is Buddhism, I'm going to finish off in this bit. Being this is Buddhism, we have another set of numbers. Because <laughs> desire or craving doesn't come in one form. It comes in three forms. The first is known as kamma, our old familiar favourite again, sense desire, so kamma tanha. The craving for sensory things. And I'll, I'll be revisiting this whole link of tanha again um, on the next talk, because there's a lot more in this as well. But... And I just want to give you kind of basic meanings this evening and then nuance it a lot more as we look at it on Thursday evening. So, kamatana. Most obvious things that we want. All the things in a sense I've been talking about. The craving for sensory things. The craving for stimulation. The craving for the new. Not wanting to be bored. That's right at the heart of kamatana. Not wanting to be bored. Ever find meditation boring? (laughs) Sometimes, yes. But this is, in a sense, part of opening up, seeing Kamatana at work. Because in the moment you feel boredom arising, in a sense, that's linked directly from this craving for stimulation. This craving for stimulation. Um, The second of the... Tanhas is what's called Bhava Tanha. We've had this link to the Asavas. And you find a lot of these links, these lists will overlap. And they're showing something different in each of their ways that they come up. Bhava Tanha, they're craving for continued existence. I always say this is you on a good day. I'm feeling so good today, I want this to go on forever. (laughs) having a good day so don't worry about it so not only sort of craving uh, like clinging to your own sort of mortality but to actually continuing like pleasant sensations that's right continuing pleasure continuing good feelings continuing whatever you might conceive of as being happiness at this moment you know all this desire to make it last it can take, of course, the fully-fledged forms of you know, the desire for immortality. Yeah. And so, in Buddhist terms, many of the other religious traditions that have an idea of an immortal soul or something like that is actually that desire for you to go on forever. Yeah. It might be even the desire for continued existence, say, through your children. Yeah. The desire to perpetuate yourself in some way. The desire to go on even through your good works, mm. or just to be remembered. It might come down even to the inscription on your tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a wonderful, I mean, this is a digression, but talking about tombstones, I saw a wonderful one in a churchyard when I was walking, and it said something like this, um, here lies so-and-so, who is a virtuous, um, virtuous and 
was it first? Virtuous and pious woman for the whole of her life, unlike the woman in the other grave. (laughs) 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 So it's worth reading inscriptions sometimes. (laughs) Now, she certainly went on forever, because I can remember it. So joking aside, it's this desire to some way to perpetuate yourself. And in many ways, again, Kama and Bawa, Tanha, can be equated with the erotic drive, in a Freudian sense, if any of you are familiar with Freud. That sort of libidinal engagement with the world that's there. Then finally, and this will be the end, I'll open it up for questions in a minute, then finally there's vibhavatana. So if I had you on a good day, let's have you on a bad day. This is the desire not to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this can take all forms like not wanting to get out of your bed in the morning. Because yeah, mm-hmm. just life looks too much of a struggle. Now, joking, all joking aside, because this is very serious, it actually can take the full form of suicidal tendencies. Yeah. The desire to destroy yourself. Now, Bawa and Vibawa, and again I say I'll nuance these a little bit more on Thursday night. Bawa and Vibawa, from a Buddhist point of view, are both based on a misconception of what the nature of the self is. I hope you can see that. Because... Obviously, they both misconstrue what the nature of the self actually is. The idea that it can be perpetuated forever, you know, perhaps in its fully-fledged form of immortality, or that it can be destroyed completely and utterly, which is Vibhava. So both attempt to either perpetuate or perhaps even destroy that which doesn't exist in the way they think it exists anyway. So again, you have to hear kind of the... I think a deep sense of sadness about that. Um, that even these, you know, these kind of strong desires to perpetuate, to go on, to keep on striving, to do all the things we do, and perhaps even the, the terrible nature of somebody who kills themselves, but is attempting, in that case, somebody who's doing that, is attempting to get rid of something that's not really there in the way that they think it is in the first place. Yeah. So they're both, in this traditional Buddhist perspective, both based on a misconception. And now we've got the fun and games going. Yeah, we've reached Tanha. And the next link, which we'll get on to on Thursday night, but it's a very important one, is Upadana. Dependent on Tanha arises Upadana. Grasping or attachment. Just a couple of words about that. As I say, I'll do this in detail on Thursday evening. Upadana is a very interesting word again. I hope you don't mind me going on about these words. Uh, it's an interesting word again because, it, like most of the Buddha's vocabulary, it was derived from the religious traditions of the time. All of the words, actually many of the words that we've got, even in the links I've given you so far, are actually words that are derived from Vedic context, if you know what that is. The Vedic context was the context where the Buddha basically was born. It was the religious traditions. It was a sacrificial religion <coughs> that went on. 
So, let me give you three little words in a Vedic context, as opposed to a Buddhist one, and I'll do the Buddhist one with you. In a Vedic context, one engages in ritual. So you have your ritual duties, and the performance of these ritual duties were called sanskaras, or sankaras. Depending on whether you did it well or you did it badly resulted in the production of good or bad karma. Nothing about intention here or anything of that sort, which is actually the crux of the Buddhist idea. And because it's a sacrificial religion, you have to keep fires burning. Have you ever been to to, to a Hindu temple? Hindu temple, you always find fires burning. In the very traditional temples, there'll be three fires going that have to be kept burning. Um, And to keep them burning, you perform upadana, which is fueling. Now, the Buddha's taken all of those terms and he's twisted them. So basically what he would have done in his own historical situation would have lots of people walking around scratching their heads, saying... He's using the same terms as us, but he's using them in different ways. But what he does is he often takes these terms and turns them into metaphors, and this is exactly what he does with the term upadana. So, let me go back to that image a second. You've got a fire. You're fueling it. You're having to put stuff on it. Actually, literally the word upadana means to fuel a material process. So you're fueling a process. Ever come across the metaphor three fires in Buddhism? No, oh. no, really? Not three fires? Everything is burning. Oh, yeah. The whole world is burning. The world is burning with three fires. Greed, hatred and delusion. Yeah. So, what the Buddha is actually saying, if you want to keep your fires of greed, hatred and delusion burning, then keep stoking them up with attachment. Just keep fueling them. Because every time I grab hold of something, then I fuel it. I actually keep my fires burning. Okay, that's enough of that for this evening. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's gone a little bit longer. It's probably about five, ten minutes longer than I intended to. But uh, we'll pick it up and we'll finish the whole of it on... uh, Thursday evening. As I say, I'll put a bit more nuancing as well on this. So it's over to you. See if you've got any questions you think you'd like to ask. Just for about 10-15 minutes, that's all. We'll keep it fairly brief. Yeah, um, at what point so far in the, in the sequence, at what point then do, does conceptualisation arrive? I can see several places where it might, the way we are where we see the world mm. you know, and um, imprint that. Where do you, how do you see it? Do well, conceptualization for the most part is going to arise somewhere around the, it's going to arise in the sanskaras. It's the way that we form our habits of thinking. So, some of the sanskaras, for example, will be conditioned not simply by ourselves, but actually by our environment and also by our linguistic environment. 
So each of the each of the languages of the world and even the languages of ancient India will divide up the world slightly differently. Yeah. In chopping up the world. And those in a sense become ingrained habits of perception of seeing the world in certain ways. It's a moot point, isn't it, as to what arises first, the word or the thing. Yeah. Exactly. I always remember when I was living in India, a Tibetan friend of mine said he didn't know he had certain emotions till he learned English. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. actually in Tibetan, you're either happy or you're sad in ordinary, ordinary vernacular Tibetan. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing in between. <laughs> you forget it. <laughs> we used to, to fantasise about translating Dostoevsky into Tibetan. <laughs> and anything that would be of psychological interest would be lost. You, know, you get boy meets girl, boy makes girl unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> Is it really that simple? It is that simple, yeah. yeah classical, uh, ordinary, ordinary vernacular Tibetan, as opposed to classical Tibetan, is very, very simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> so in the same vein, where does free will go here? Can I leave that one suspended till tomorrow night? Because this will come in with what we've got to do. I mean, I'm, I will mention that one very, very important term that's used in all, all of the teachings, which is actually then the psychological material, which is chetana, volition, will. And it's very, very important. It's part of the system of the mind. You know, it's not imported from outside, it's already there. So free will is very, very, very much there. Mm. And it, again, it will be how you start to... Uh, how you start to unpick the chain. And I'll talk about that more tomorrow. The concept then of I, the, the I, arising uh, in consciousness later than, later than, um, than uh, for, kind of formations, really. No, the, with the I, really, the, the, uh, with the actual phrase that's used in Sanskrit and Pali, is ahankara, the I maker, that which makes the I, is, is taking place in the interaction between consciousness and formations, yeah. and ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Because remember, I, I joked about it, didn't I? I said, you know, formations are us, habits are us. That's who I think I am. Yeah. Now, I might say, although, I mean, I've given a fairly negative press to saying Sankara's, the formations, to make a particular point in relationship to this. But the Sankara's are not all bad. Some of those could be good habits mm-hmm. as well, good dispositions okay. that we have. So they're karmically positive, not simply karmically negative. Because it's sangsara, of course, the vast majority of them are karmically negative. In result, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So in some ways we can see that you know, a lot of the stuff that we do in terms of you know, free will, organizing, you know, directing our attentions in a particular way, looking at what we do, that starts to bring into play uh, more positive karmic formations. Yeah, just yeah, I'm kind of just wondering then how, if if everything, when do you reach a point where suddenly you're not kind of caught up in all this, you're actually doing what you want to be doing as opposed to doing what went before is dictating that you do. Well, that's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, this is this is this, in a sense, is the task. 
that confronts um, confronts us if you want freedom in scare quotes. Because in a way that the chain of dependent origination is a deterministic chain. It's, it's the ultimate vicious circle in many ways. Um, and it's deterministic if you just allow it to function in the way it does. So hence the reason I've been stressing to you in the few talks I've given you of the reason of beginning to see the relationship between Vedana and the arising of craving. Because that's where we can immediately begin to see it. All that stuff about formation, some of them I can see in, and I'm past bulk and I won't. You know, because they're so deeply ingrained in us that, as I say, we believe they are us in many ways. You know, associated with our personalities, our characters, our sense of self, all these sorts of things. And so they become really, really difficult. But in a way, you get th- to them through that by beginning to break that chain. Mm. And that's the swimming against the stream. That's the swimming thing. against the stream, yeah. That's, and now once you begin to do that in a way then you can start to see the back chain of where it's being driven from it's like the person for example who, let's just take an addiction because this is really a kind of very good description of addictive behaviour the person who say for example has an addiction and can break the chain in other words they might still have the they might still have the feeling life is unpleasant hence I want to keep getting drunk or whatever they might want to do but they don't and so they break that chain they're left just simply with the feeling then they might be able to see all the causes that gave rise to that feeling of wanting to escape the karmic formations the the, the desire to escape the unpleasant and so on and so forth so you begin perhaps to see everything that goes you know, the driving force behind that addiction. Yeah. And in a sense, in a bigger sense, obviously that's what you're beginning to do with dependent origination by keep on doing that. Keep on trying to break that chain. And it's only mindfulness that will do that. Keep on becoming aware of what's going on. Then the rest, in a sense, follows. You begin to see it. In a way, we are all addicts. I mean, in that moment that we have the craving and choose to indulge it, you know, that's the moment where yeah. we are we're still an addict. Yeah. Even if it's not alcohol or whatever, it's just... That's yeah. right. I mean, those are the obvious ones, aren't yeah. they? I mean, substances kind of, or whatever, but it's yeah. just behaviours, isn't there? It's the behaviours, it's... Well, it's the compulsion. I mean, I've only got to... You don't have to think in terms of the big addictions, drugs and alcohol and all the rest yeah. of it. Just look at the compulsion to keep on buying that's in our societies. Yeah, you've only got to walk out into the street and you see that, that addictive tendency. It's the same addiction. It's just that, you know, these are not substances which are either banned or kind of in a dubious relationship with society. Yeah. It's all addictive behaviour. But throwing light onto <clears throat> Vedanas, or wherever you choose to throw the light, you know, to attempt to break the chain... <clears throat> Just doing that, bringing it into focus, into illumination, Mm. into consciousness, does far more, doesn't it, than you would think it would do. That's right, yeah. I mean, this is actually, in a sense, one of the fundamental meanings of the term mindfulness. Because the term sati means to recollect, to remember. This is one of its primary meanings in, in Pali. 
And so what we're doing is by keep throwing mindfulness on it, we're recollecting what's going on. Actually, what's going on? That almost ought to be the question mm. for everybody. What's going on? Not what I, what, what I like to be going on, but what's actually going on? Yeah. What are the processes? And have I got the, I don't know, courage in a sense to look into those processes that's going on? Now, you, that's why you start, and it's, of course it's an increasing spectrum, isn't it? Because you start from the small and begin to expand that awareness to encompass a lot of things. But it is like shining a light in the darkness. Yeah. In many ways, if you wanted to kind of, in con well, more contemporary psychology terms, it's like throwing a light into the Freudian unconscious yeah, and seeing what's going on. Not very pretty at times. Not very pretty, but in a way, the only, the only way you're going to be released from it is actually by seeing it. Because mm. otherwise, it's always going to be there lurking in the dark, waiting to get you. <laughs> but the ways of described craving, um, John, it covered um, so much, like pleasures, like just say pleasure in um, looking at nature or avoiding being... Board. So I think all the people, um, you know, with various jobs and the way they spend their time, like you studying, a scholar, teaching, mm. any sort of job that you can think of, if those people didn't do those things, then they would be, be bored. Mm. I mean, the time is there to be filled. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, it's... it's a, it is, it is covering a lot of those things, but it's that, it's that compulsion to overcome every bored state. That's where it's very really indicative of craving. It's not, it's not the fact that we have activities that we engage in, and we sometimes have to do, obviously, for, for employment purposes and things like that. It's, it's the compulsion to, again, every boring state or unpleasant state that arises, I wish to get out of. Now, boredom in the Western world in particular, I think, is considered to be rather unpleasant and one has to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, and that's what I mean by the compulsion to try and do it. So it's, it's compulsion. It's not so much that we engage in a lot of activity or anything like that, but it might require you to actually look at why you're engaging in all this activity. Mm -hmm. yeah. To see whether you're overcome, you know, just basically trying to cover up something. That's all. Yeah. Uh, so stressing the compuls compulsive side. Yes, it's really yeah, recognising the compulsion to do it. You know, just like you know, the compulsion to know, eat chocolate or drink alcohol or whatever. You know, None of these things in themselves are a problem. It's the compulsion to keep doing them that's a problem. Yeah, and again, when we... Um, it's interesting, isn't it, how we say it's the substance which is the problem. No, it's not. It's the relationship. It's the mind that's the problem that has the relationship with the substance or whatever it might be. What did you say? Uh, see, somebody who has a uh, strong heroin addiction, he might want very much to stop it, but cannot. Yeah, I mean, there are obviously physical addictions as well, not, not, just, not just the mental stuff. Um, a lot of it will start with a mental form of addiction before it becomes a physical addiction. In cases like that, obviously, in strong heroin addiction, and sometimes with alcohol as well, people have to go through detox yeah, to get rid of it out of the system before they can even begin to then start dealing with the cravings, um, which is trying to overcome or to cover up something. 
in their lives. So there are obviously very strong addiction, physical addiction. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.